Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of our Lord. This may or may not be uh, your experience, but I remember my first couple of years as a Christian. I remember being ashamed to admit to other Christians that this Christian life, a life that was new to me, was actually difficult to live. That there were aspects of the Christian life that were confusing to me, that it seemed that uh, everyone ought to admit, everyone who is a Christian ought to admit that living the Christian life is actually rather difficult. And the reason I was ashamed is because, uh, by God's will, most of the Christians who were around me, I don't know why he did this, most of the Christians who were around me would uh, propagate that notion that to be a Christian is to live an easy life. It's to have all of the answers. It's to know what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say, what to think, what not to think. Seemed easy, but I didn't find it easy. I found it difficult. The Christian life is, in truth, nowhere near as simple as we think that it might be. And it's good for us to acknowledge that. Uh, simply enough, it's, it's good for us to acknowledge that, that we would rely upon God and his indwelling Holy Spirit, uh, a gift of the converted life. His Spirit is with us always. And in this passage, Paul is making an appeal to the church, and he's saying that the earnest need for the church is to turn over every aspect of Christian life to God. That's his appeal to me individually, to turn over every aspect of my life to God, and to you as a Christian to turn over every aspect of your life to God. But I want us to understand that Paul does not say this as if it's something that's very easy to do. In fact, there are indications in the passage that would show that this is hard. In fact, we might even say that this is impossible. That God needs to have compassion upon us, mercy upon us. He needs to surround us with that compassion and mercy, but also he needs to dwell in us with the strength of his Holy Spirit. Now, there is a work, there is an effort for the Christian But I don't want us to think, as I did for the first couple of years of my converted life, that the Christian life is supposed to be uh, easy, uh, mechanistic, merely pulling down the right levers. The earnest need for the church is to turn over every aspect of our life to God. But he is there to help us in this. And Paul describes an appeal in a variety of different ways, or I should say, from a variety of different perspectives. And the the outline of the sermon is simply this. Uh, There is a special kind of appeal that Paul makes in verse 1. The word appeal is uh, language of the Greek Bible. He is making an appeal, and the kind of appeal that he is making to us is where we'll begin. But then he describes the object of that appeal, what the appeal is pointing us to. And I think the answer to that is where Paul talks about this is your spiritual worship at the end of verse 1. 
And then not merely the kind of the appeal or the object of the appeal, but the actual action of that appeal is the subject of verse 2. So that's what we'll do this morning. The kind of appeal, the object of the appeal, and the action of the appeal. I mean, you, you see it right in front of you in verse 1. I appeal to you, Paul says. And the kind of appeal that he's making is a very urgent appeal. Uh, this word is a strident word. It, it's a, it's a, it's a, he's imploring. He is saying something that is strong and powerful. It's an urgent appeal. But I want us also to know that it's an urgent appeal with soft edges. Remember, we're talking about the kind of appeal. This is important. It's an urgent appeal, but it's an urgent appeal with soft edges. He is certainly being urgent. He is imploring, uh, uh, urging us. He uses this arresting word, and it's almost but not quite like shouting a fire for uh, everyone to, to, uh, to scatter. Fire, he says. This is an appeal. And when he makes this kind of appeal elsewhere, you, you feel it uh, very surely. He says in Romans 15, uh, I appeal to you, brothers, to strive together with me in your prayers. You hear that urgency. Uh, or he'll say in the last chapter of Romans, Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, watch out for those who cause divisions. Feel this word. It's an urgency. But, but I don't want us to think that Paul is uh, angry. He's serious, but he's not angry. And the evidence for this is that sometimes a minister is called uh, to be urgent, to make this kind of strident appeal. In Second Timothy chapter 4, a famous preaching passage, Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That's Paul's word, exhort, appeal. But what does Paul say when he gives advice to a young minister like Timothy? Yes, absolutely, you have to be ready to exhort people, to urge them, to speak, speak loudly. But in 2 Timothy 4, in Paul's advice to this young preacher, he says, and exhort, appeal, with complete patience. Exhort your people, Timothy, but with complete patience. And Paul goes on, for a time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but you're, you're imploring them, you're urging them, ought to be done with patience. And so Paul, here he is uh, making this great appeal, but he, he's not angry. But he wants us to pay attention. And by us, I mean Christian people. The appeal is made to Christians. I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you, sisters. That's the nature of the word that he uses for brother. I appeal to you, Christian people. And if we ever thought that this would be the kind of appeal, what Paul is about to say, that ought to be directed towards non-believers, well, we can't think that. He is only speaking to Christians. And, and not only that, his appeal is, uh, is actually a personal appeal. He says, uh, I appeal to you. I'm saying this to you. And one ought to sense, certainly with Romans chapter 7 in the back of our minds, one ought to sense that when he is making this appeal, he knows what it's like to hear this appeal. He knows what it's like to do what he is about to tell them to do. It comes to Christian people from a Christian person who is speaking from personal experience. It's the kind of appeal that he is making. It's urgent. 
But Paul's appeal happens in a special context, and you see it right there in verse 1, and I don't want us to skip it. The appeal happens in the context of the mercy of God. Not just mercy of God generically understood, but uh, he says by the mercies, plural of God. And there he uses a, a pretty rare word. I'm not sure that I like the word mercies. The word compassion might be better, but it, it sounds a little funny, doesn't it? By the compassions of God. But that really is what Paul is saying. It's a very rare word, but it's a very soothing word. In Second Corinthians, Paul calls God the Father of mercies. Same rare word used in the plural. He's the Father of not merely compassion, but compassions all over the place. There's an urgent call in our lives as Christians from a Christian, but that call cannot happen apart from the accompanying compassions of God. And Paul's saying, I'm making an urgent appeal to you, but you need to hear this appeal. In fact, you perhaps can only hear this appeal in light of God's compassions. Or my appeal is urgent, but it only makes sense because of the extraordinary compassions of God. You see, here, I think, is often where the non-believer misunderstands the Christian. And perhaps the Christian is not being very clear, and so it's the Christian's fault. But nevertheless, a non-believer might say, you Christians, you're just too uptight. You're too uptight. I can't live my life like that. I don't want to live my life like that. And, and, and to be sure, they're seeing things that are true. I don't necessarily mind being told that I'm living a life that is uptight. But oftentimes, the way Christians respond is they respond by saying, yes, but the Bible says X, Y, and Z. Yes, but the Bible says. Yes, but the Bible says. Uh, it may seem uptight, but the Bible says, which is, which is true. What we tend to be doing, however, is we, we tend to defer to what the Bible says about our obedience. The Bible says I'm to act this way. And it's appropriate for us to tell our non-believing friends and family members that, yes, it is appropriate that the Bible says that I live this way, this way that to you seems uptight. But perhaps we ought to begin to understand the urgency of the Christian life as not depending upon obedience, but rather depending upon the call of God to that obedience with his multitude of compassions. My life, which you may think is uptight, is a life that is bathed in the multitude of compassions that God has shown to me. And indeed, my life that may look uptight to you, I call a life of gratitude for those many compassions. He has made all things. He has given life to all things. And he has come to me. He has found me. He has loved me. He has saved me. He tolerates me with patience and with power. He surrounds me with his safety and is drawing me to himself. He's full of mercies. He's full of compassions. And I'm a recipient of those. Well, this word mercies, it's not found elsewhere in Romans. But hasn't Paul been telling us all along about how the gospel is God's great concern for humanity? His compassion is the gospel of grace that is given to the world, that the world might hear the name of Jesus and bow before him. That Paul is saying that the urgency of how you live your life is directly connected with God's compassions. 
Framed like this, the Christian life is an obedience to God's word, but it's also a response of gratitude for his many compassions. God has come to me in his compassions. Now, the object of this appeal, uh, I think that if you could summarize in English the object of this appeal, it would be spiritual worship. This is the, the big ask of Paul's appeal. The plain spoken person, the man whom Alexander White once called uh, the man who speaks farmer's English. The plain spoken person just wants to hear this. Okay, I get it, Paul. There's an appeal here. There's an urgency here. I hear it. What do you want? What do you want? And if we could frame that answer uh, in two words, we would have to say spiritual worship. He says, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then he defines what that is, which is your spiritual worship. The, the NIV there at the end of verse 1 says proper worship. The King James says reasonable service. Now, those of you who have an ESV in front of you might notice that the note for spiritual worship uh, leads you to also consider that it may be rational service. It's a rather unique phrase. In fact, it is a unique phrase. If we had uh, only uh, Paul in front of us, the writings of Paul, or in fact, if we had only the letter of Romans in front of us, and if we had only Aristotle uh, in front of us, the complete works of Aristotle, that's an unusual situation, I'll grant. But these words show up in, uh, in the Bible. Paul uses it once. Peter uses uh, this word for spiritual once. Aristotle actually uses this word quite often. And if we only had Paul before us and Aristotle before us, we'd understand worship according to the Old Testament, all of the service before the temple, including the feasts, including the sacrifices, including the tithe, everything that constitutes service at the temple. We'd have that in our mind with the phrase spiritual worship. And we would understand uh, the word uh, spiritual, as Aristotle does, as a word that expresses a use of the reason or of the rationality. Uh, the word actually sounds like, that word for spiritual sounds like the word logic. And so to Aristotle, uh, a worship that is spiritual would be a worship that is rational or logic, or we might say simply a part of being a human person. And so what does Paul mean when he says spiritual worship? It's the big ask of the appeal. We should, we should wonder, what does Paul mean? Spiritual worship. One commentator says that this phrase spiritual worship means thoughtful service to God. Thoughtful service to God. We might say reasonable service or rational service to God. Another commentator says this. He says that spiritual worship means uh, an intelligent understanding worship. Intelligent understanding worship. You know, we find this word in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says this. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. But we might say long for the pure rational milk or for the pure thoughtful milk or for the pure reasonable milk. It doesn't have quite the same ring though, does it? But it's the same word. A spiritual worship is a worship that is appropriate to human beings that have been rescued by God's grace. Uh, spiritual worship is a worship that has to do with who we are as created beings, created by God, having been made for what? To worship Him, to enjoy Him, to glorify Him. That's what we were made to do. 
And in that regard, we, we, we echo the thought of or the sentimentality of Aristotle who would say this has something to do with, with who we are as human beings. That's what it means to be spiritual in this way. But what Paul is saying is Paul is saying that though we were polluted in Adam's sin, Romans 5, we have been made new in Christ Jesus. We are returned or restored in that initial purpose for which we were made to worship and enjoy and serve God. It's appropriate to our being. This spiritual worship is something that we were made for, and it fits a people who have been converted by the power of the gospel. And Paul says more about what the spiritual worship is. Uh, He says the spiritual worship is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. When we read these two short verses, we ought to go back and forth between uh, language and terminology that is eloquent and beautiful, language and terminology that is uh, vaunted and intellectual, and then language and terminology that is gory. The word sacrifice shows up here. What do you think Paul means by this? And Paul is saying that we shouldn't think of worship only as a Sunday morning event or evening devotions or sitting in a quiet cafe reading our Bible. Paul is talking about a constant activity of presenting ourselves before God. The spiritual worship, it's a constant activity. And so we shouldn't think of worship only as Sunday morning, but we also shouldn't think of worship only as engaging a part of our bodies, our minds, or our passions. When he says we are to present or offer our bodies, he's referring to all that we are, all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, all of our passions, all of our words, our public self, and our private self. That's what he means by our bodies. Calvin says not only our skin and bones, but the totality of which we are composed. Everything that I have, everything that I am, is to be employed in my worship. And my worship is not to be something that is only on Sunday. My worship is a constant activity of presenting myself before God. Day in, day out personally, publicly. Paul says that our spiritual worship is to conceive of our life as a living sacrifice. Even the passage that we read this morning, it could, be, it could be understood as the kind of sacrifice that's made on the Lord's Day or the kind of sacrifice that's made in the morning and in the, and in the evening. But Paul is saying that this is a constant part of our life. This picture of sacrifice, is, it's magnificent, it's beautiful. But it's also gory. We just think about this. Leading a goat to the temple mound. The best goat in the flock. Leading this goat. The goat having no idea what's going on. And turning this goat over to a priest who takes the goat and kills the goat. And Paul with urgency says that our spiritual worship is to live a life that's similar to that goat. At first, he says we are presenting ourselves. We're not being presented by someone else. He tells us that every part of our personality is to be presented. We withhold nothing. We lay it open to be used by someone else. There is a work involved in making ourselves that sacrifice. There is a work that is indeed involved in presenting ourselves. And at the same time, he says that not only are we presenting ourselves, but we are living sacrifices. 
the life that we live is not a life of our own invention. My physical life, it comes from God. And the life that I live now as a converted Christian, I live eternally because of the redeeming grace of God. And remembering this, uh, Paul is addressing this to Christians. He's saying this to Christians specifically. Our life is infinitely more precious than the life of that goat that is offered for sacrifice. Our life has already been secured by a greater sacrifice. My sacrificing my life is not where my security comes from. My security comes from the work of the Holy Spirit giving me new life that can be employed in the service of God. If there's any sacrifice at all in myself, in presenting myself as a living sacrifice, it's a sacrifice of self. The goat does not do this. But why do you think it's necessary that Paul would say to us that we are a people who are constantly, vigilantly offering ourselves as a living sacrifice? Well, the goat that's used in worship is described by the Bible as a goat that is holy, that is acceptable to God, that is good, that is perfect. This is Old Testament terminology for an appropriate offering to be presented before God. Our sacrifice is a sacrifice of self. Our sacrifice is the kind of sacrifice, is a sacrifice that needs to hear this constant appeal, this constant reminder, this constant work of the Holy Spirit. Our sacrifice, this sacrifice of self, is a sacrifice that leads to our growth in holiness. The kind of sacrifice that we're called to offer is a sacrifice that ought to happen every moment of our day. Because we're sacrificing ourselves for the glory of our King who has shown us compassion upon compassion upon compassion. Now, we need to talk about what exactly that sacrifice looks like. And Paul will say more in verse 2. But all of Romans 12 through 16 tell us about what that living sacrifice of the life of the Christian is. But I want to take us to a scene in World War I. And a scene is reported by a man uh, named Robert Graves, a novelist of the beginning of the 20th century, a British man. A man who has no great regard for the church of Jesus. But one thing that stood out to him is watching the Welsh infantry uh, march uh, into battle in France. And I think I've shared this illustration with you before, but it's powerful. And none of these young Welshmen uh, should really have been there. They were too young There's plenty of information that says that these men uh, were uh, enlisted at far too young of an age, some of them as young as 14 years old. And as they uh, approached the battlefield, they began uh, uh, singing, and Robert Graves notices this. He says, instead of the usual music hall songs that were heard on the battlefield, these young Welsh boys sang Welsh hymns. Each man taking a part. Imagine that scene. And Robert Graves says, this is the way with the Welsh. The Welsh always sang when pretending not to be scared. It kept them steady and they never sang out of tune. I love that picture. I think that that picture is a wonderful picture of the Christian life. Do you feel as though life in the present age is a battle, is a war? 
Paul in verse 2 is going to describe life in the present age like that, as a war. And here we are, people walking into that war, and we're doing something that is so absurd. Our thoughts are not on the battle. Every sinew of our being, every fiber of our perception of the world around us is devoted to singing the hymns of God. And someone ought to look at those people and say, yes, you are a bit uptight. But we are surrounded by the compassions of God. And his compassions fill our bodies and fill our mouths. And we cannot but sing of his compassions. Not uh, because we are afraid, but especially in our fear. Living sacrifices. It's a glorious picture. I want to take you there at the very end. But let's talk about the action of the appeal, the work or the effort that Paul is demanding. Paul uses two command words. One of them is do not be conformed and the other one is be transformed. They seem to match pretty well in the English. They don't at all in the Greek. But they are command words. And here's what he says. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I argued that Paul made an urgent appeal, but an urgent appeal surrounded by God's compassion, an appeal made in light of God's many compassions. One of the things that non-believers don't understand, largely because Christians don't speak this way, is that the world preaches to us. Do you believe that as a Christian? God, using the prophets, makes an appeal to the world, to the world out of His grace and His mercy. He speaks even when the hearer doesn't deserve to be spoken. In fact, the hearer does not, does not deserve to be spoken to. God reveals Himself to a people who hide from Him. God interacts in time and space with the people who do everything in their power to ignore Him. But one of the things non-believers don't understand about Christians is that Christians believe that the world preaches too. Not just God. That the world has an urgent appeal to us. The world has an urgent appeal to everyone. And that appeal is not encompassed by the grace of God. It's devoid of grace. It's an appeal that's cold and hard and selfish. What does the world preach to me? Whatever I want it to. Whatever I want it to. The world echoes in who I believe I am. If I will listen, the world will tell me who I am because I allow the world to tell me who I am. The world will tell me what morality is and what morality is not. The world will tell tell me uh, what is good and what is not good. The world will define perfection for me and the world will chart out an object for me to pursue. What non-believers don't understand is that Christians really believe that the world has a message. A message that's preached. An appeal. And Paul wants us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind rather than sit and listen and inculcate and imbibe the preaching of the world. When Paul says the renewal of our mind, I want to talk about this a bit. By mind, Paul is using a very broad word, which again, it's used in classical literature. This word for mind refers not merely to intellectual perception like thinking. This word for mind uh, also uh, uh, refers to the way that we think, our attitude, and it even refers to the results of our thinking, our thoughts and our opinions. And I believe what Paul is saying is he's saying this. He's saying that every one of us has a sense-making machine inside of us. 
Every one of us has some little machine, little gizmo inside of us that helps us make sense of the world around us. And we can understand the world around us by God's revealed word and by his indwelling Holy Spirit. Or we can understand the world around us by a pattern of the present age, a preaching of the present age. And what Paul is saying is to be transformed is the mind, that sense-making capacity of the world. Paul is saying that this transformation, he's saying it's not an impulse. It's not something that you just do one, uh, do once and you walk away. It's this, this transformation is this constant reality written in the present tense. We're to be constantly aware of our thinking, of our attitudes, of our opinions. We're to be perceiving the world around us, but we're also to be perceiving the world inside of us through the lens of God's revealed word. We're to think about, to form opinions about the world that are based upon God's holy word. And we're to make those same opinions and have those uh, same uh, forms of thinking about ourselves. And we're to sense the patterns of the world already within us. This isn't a self-run transformation. We're not being told to transform ourselves by the very power of our mind. Our mind is engaged. Our thinking, our attitudes and opinions... But this verb, transform, it's in the passive voice. We're to be transformed. It's something that is driven by an outside agent. It's to be driven by the Holy Spirit given to us in Christ Jesus. Again, the compassion of God surrounds this passage. I have God's compassion with me as a Christian. He is teaching me how to understand the world around me and the world's pattern inside of me. But nevertheless, this is a command verb. Be transformed is in the passive, but it's a command. Just as the world urgently appeals to me, preaches to me with its own pattern, God urgently preaches to me, appeals to me to take responsibility for my life as a Christian man. Now, when Paul says to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, he does need to tell us how, doesn't he? He has to tell us how. Paul, what do you mean by that? To be transformed by the renewal of my mind. I am very grateful that my mind can be renewed, that my, not, my mind is not hard-stamped and, and can't be changed, that my, my thinking, my impulses, my opinions, these things can be changed through God's grace and through my work. But Paul, you need to tell me more. And I would argue that Paul does tell us more. That's what Romans 12 through 16 is about. That transformation, that renewal is the subject matter of Romans 12 through 16. But he does tell us this in this passage. He says that our life as a Christian person is a life of what? It's a life of testing. It's a life of testing then what? Well, in verse 2, Paul says our life as Christian people is a life of testing ourselves. I believe this is why Paul uses the phrase, the renewal of your mind. Praise God that the mind is renewable. That thinking and attitudes and opinions can be changed, can be renewed as we live our lives. But there's something else here. Inside of me. 
there is something that needs to be tested. And inside of you, Christian, there is something that needs to be tested. We're called to test ourselves to see that what we find valuable in our life is what God finds valuable. We're to test ourselves to see that what we find good inside of ourselves is what God calls good. We're to test ourselves to find out if I am acceptable to myself or if I'm acceptable first and foremost to God. I'm to look inside of myself and I am to find out if I am uh, perfect before God or if I am striving to be perfect before myself. When I walk into a field of battle, when I walk into a field of smoke and shout and fire of war, whose song am I singing? You see, that's why I started earlier uh, and said that the Christian life is a lot more difficult than we think. A lot of times what we call the Christian life is nothing more than calling out the pattern of the world around us. And as Christians, we ought to be able to do that. But the Christian life is more than that. The Christian life is presenting this life that I have been given by God's grace as a living sacrifice before God. This life that I live as a Christian, it's, it's personal, it's hard. And as a Christian, I'm surrounded by the many compassions of God. I'm surrounded by uh, the, compassion of the, 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 the compassion of God in the church around me. I'm filled with God's compassion by the Holy Spirit. But all the same, I am called to join God in his plan for me. That I would be a living sacrifice before him. That I would be holy and acceptable to him and him alone. And I need to hear this appeal. And Paul makes it urgent. And you need to hear this appeal. Because we are the kind of people that need to discern the patterns of the world not merely around us. That may be the easy part. But inside of us as well. To test ourselves. It is no mystery that a leader in the church is called to specifically pay attention, not merely to others, but to themselves. Well, how do I, how do I do this? Well, we have God's word. We have a word of command, but we also have a word of comfort and long suffering, and we need both. I think that oftentimes as Christians, we get these out of balance. We think that we merely have a word of command from God, but we also have a word of comfort and long suffering love. He is with us. That's why in our worship service together, we assure one another of who we are in Christ with His word, not with the words of a man. And so we have God's word. That's how I do that. But we also have each other. We have saints in the life of the church. And we sharpen one another. But we also serve as examples to one another. And we forgive one another such that by that forgiveness, we hope that we might be softening softening hard hearts. The whole message of verse 2 is a message that's applied to Christians that they would discern the patterns of the world that's in their heart. And God has spoken to us in his word. And he has given a great gift to us, the church, that our brothers and sisters might love us, even though, even though there are patterns of this world inside of us. Well, the earnest need for the church is to turn over every aspect of our life to God. That, my brothers and sisters, is what Romans 12 through 16 is about. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this letter, and we ask that you uh, would feed us well by it. We pray for the next uh, few weeks as we spend time in this letter, 
that we would be empowered by your spirit and willing to sacrifice ourselves for your glory. Cause us to grow more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.